Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Again? Uh, hi, my name is Matthias Castle. Okay, great. And, Keep going. And my name is Matthias Castle, and my background is in a bachelor's of arts and religious studies and philosophy. And I became interested in the Arshantoria as part of my studies in Western esotericism. And my introduction of it was naturally through Robert Turner's 1657 English translation of a composite work of the Arshantoria. And for myself, it was an adventure into figuring out the puzzle because the Robert Turner translation has some imperfections with it, and I sought that sought to translate the uh, original 13th century treatise and discover how the ritual is to be performed. So I have to interrupt. Which I have a completely unrelated question: Is that a, a vintage a vintage CRT screen behind you? I'm sorry. Is that a is that a CRT screen behind you for playing video games from oh, the nineties? Yes. Yeah, the yeah the TV. Yes, a man of taste. I see. Very good. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Those are those well, are popular, you know, right? That's like people are buying these TVs from the nineties because you they like nineties video games only really look good on them. That's that's true. So it's is it worth the hype? Oh well, uh, we we grew up with that, right? playing Nintendo games and video games on those old CRT TVs. So was it like what they was that like expensive and hard to find? No, really. I got off of Craigslist years ago. Not bad. Okay. So yeah, sorry. it was like $25. Not bad. Okay. Tangent. Okay. Just want had to ask you about that. Oh, sure. <laughs> okay. So all right. So the Ars Notoria, what is this is a ritual simply for in Increasing your memory. Is that correct for university students that were meant to perform this in the Middle Ages to boost their their memory? Uh, yes, that's a big part of it. But you also learn certain fields of knowledge. And in the, in the medieval period, they were interested in learning the uh, seven liberal art, which include uh, grammar, logic, rhetoric, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. But then they were also interested in the forbidden magical arts as well, which included various divination arts. So people would have done this ritual with the idea that it would increase their ability to study other forms of magic? Certainly, yes, that, that seems to be the case. And the idea is that this book was a, a fast track to gaining that knowledge and memory quickly. And so it was a seeing it as a shortcut and so you would take that shortcut to get further along in society and climb climb the social ladder, as it were. So would you say that this was basically the medieval equivalent of Adderall for university students, meaning they, they needed a, some type of cognitive edge just to get their studies done? Um, well, it's certainly a cognitive edge, yes. They, you know, back, back in those days, things were taken down. I mean, they they had some writings, of course, but things were learned pretty much orally, and so oftentimes you had to memorize what your professor had said, and so a lot of a lot of 
life was dependent on having a really good memory so you can quote mm. certain authorities on a particular subject so you could debate with your colleagues and be like, no, no, Aristotle said this, and therefore my argument is correct. And so having the Ars Notoria to give you that that storehouse memory well established was a great benefit to people at that time. Interesting. So is this similar to like memory palaces, like that type of technique? Yes. So it comes from the the memory palaces, as as we call it today, the art of memory, which has ancient Greek origins or perhaps even further shrouded in mystery how how that technique came about. But yes, they had the in the Ars Notoria, that's the the central feature or attraction is these figures that you would use to learn particular arts, you know, the like grammar or your logic or your rhetoric. And these figures were meant to be used in the art of memory and this particular visualization technique in which you would place the new information within each figure Hmm. and do this mental walkthrough of like walking through the figure or through this field or through this building or whatever you've you've imagined and seeing the different landmarks and images that you've created to you know memorize the the new information from your, your textbooks that's the ars notoria or memory palaces specifically well it's both so okay. the, the the ars notoria includes the art of memory or these memory palaces okay and it's and its technique yes so that's really interesting because memory palaces are a magical technique that is that's still widely practiced in our society like you don't have to dig that far you can find doctor or not doc, maybe not doctors but you can find lawyers and politicians in interviews saying that they use something like that or if you look up memory palaces this is still a technique this is that is taught for public speaking so you know, I feel like our society is always on the lookout for things that will give us some type of an edge. I'm wondering if this is something that you think might actually be of interest to modern people. I mean, do you see this as being something that people in the 21st century could have an interest in? Certainly. Uh, like I said, as you said, the same technique is there. What the Irish Notoria brings that's different or adds to that technique is the dream visitation one is expected to have of an angel that will come and tutor you as you go and practice the the, the notary art ritual. So, so in, in you, you have the angel that's enhancing your, your mental faculties and your spiritual faculties to get more like a super boost of your memory rather than just doing the technique mundanely. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. That's so this angel is meant to visit you in a dream or in dreams. And then does the angel tutor you in the ritual or just in general? It's not exactly clear, but the text does say that when the angel does visit you, that the angel will present certain letters to you. And these letters are to be understood or interpreted and you're practice of the notary art. So do we have any historical record of people doing this or claiming success? We do not, but we have records of who had possessed the book, such as John D. and Simon Foreman. There was Dr. Thomas Rudd, I believe, also had a copy of it. But certainly... It was in possession of those English Renaissance uh, magicians, and we can, you know, you know, speculate that perhaps they did use it, or perhaps were inspired by it in their own particular magical operations. Interesting. Have you done this? I have done a little bit of experimentation, but I uh, reserve any. Uh, discussion about my own personal experience with it. But I, I primarily have looked at this as as an academic okay, and looked at uh, just doing the translation work and providing the, the commentary and giving the historical context on this, on this uh, Ars Notoria. So why, why is this so important 
in historical context? Yeah, so, well, it, the Ars Notori had a strong influence on the four, 14th, 15th centuries. And as, it, as we already talked about, had an influence on the university students who had, a, had a, an attraction to it. Um, but it had also spawned these other derivative works. The one that's most of interest is probably John Moringi, the French Benedictine monk who had used the Ars Notoria and wrote his own particular rewriting of the book and had his own particular following in France. And he had stopped using it as the Ars Notoria proper and rewrote it because he had an experience that thinking that demons were involved. And so he sought the sought refuge in the Virgin Mary. Who what what was that experience? What was that experience? Oh, what was that experience? Yeah. Um, he, he, he had some sort of night terrors or dream, dreams of demons coming to him. And he, he associated them with the, his practice of the Argentoria. So he, like I said, sought refuge in the Virgin Mary. And she had, she guided him to do a rewriting that was more, I guess, in our terms, more, more Christian, more holy, something of that sort. And so he did his own book, which is called the the Book of Heavenly Flowers of the Flowers of Heavenly Teaching. And his book was, like I said, had a following of other disciples and then in 1323 his book was publicly burned at the university of paris and then there were other writings that came along that rewrote the, the notary art and so we have this it's not just the ars notoria itself but we have this tradition of other writings that people kept having an interest in and by the probably the end of the 15th century and thereafter, it started to wane because the education system changed. And then the scientific revolution occurred in the 17th century. And so that changes the education system. And so that, whereas the Ars Notoria is built on this, you know, late Middle Ages education system. But even, despite that, you know, the material is that's studied is still of interest to people today. You know, like I said, you know, arithmetic. Astro astronomy, geometry, all those things are still of interest to people today. So it has a certain appeal. And again, the, the art of memory, certainly as well, as we just said. Yeah. I'm even thinking about, you know, if you just take a step back, you know, seeing this as maybe like a mental exercise to stave off, you know, for people who are worried about dementia or Alzheimer's. Like, could this be a mental exercise that would be of assistance of just like, I'm assuming there's lots of like memorizing tons of or, or mental exercise essentially in doing this to boost your memory? The book itself just follows the memory palace technique, but certainly would have an interest to, yeah, I mean, I believe scientific studies have shown, you know, memory techniques do boost your cognitive ability, and that would be of interest for those who have cognitive impairments. You know, you walk into the, the bookstore today, you, you'll find a magazine about boost your memory, mm -hmm. help help increase your ability to remember things and so forth. And it has all the scientific data to back it up for, for today's, you know, modern readers. So Interesting. Yeah. It just occurs to me that, you know, our society now in many ways is so obsessed with cognitive en enhancement or a certain subset of society is tech people in particular are obsessed with for instance smart drugs or finding ways to like hack their sleep biohacking things like this but one thing that they never discuss is mental exercise you'll hear people pay lip service to meditation but usually what they mean is like an app or at best transcendental meditation but you don't hear people talking about things like this, or there's a, I just saw that Aeon Books is reissuing Mauni Sadhu's book, Concentration. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. 
No. It's somewhat similar where it's it's from the early part. It's fairly theosophical, but it's just a series of extremely stre extremely strenuous visualization exercises for boosting your concentration. Interesting book. Oh, okay. But walk us through the ritual. If someone like, you know, let's imagine the reader is a medieval monk and you are their tutor and you are here or the listener, excuse me, is a medieval monk and you are their tutor here to explain what this ritual is going to be like. What would you tell them? Walk us through step by step. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, you have a couple options because first I would say you have to look at the work of Julian Veronese, the French scholar who had classified the Argentoria in two essential groups. You have a version A and a version B. Version A is the short version of the Argentoria, and version B is the long and gloss version of the Argentoria. And so those are two separate approaches to the Argentoria ritual. And so if we look at the version A, there are some missing there are some gap in the ritual because what we're dealing with in version a is actually an incomplete book which has been supplemented with additional material okay and we can talk about that separately but what i've done then is i i've helped fill in some of those gaps from from looking at version b and then finding some clues in version a so in, in some sense i have helped reconstruct version A, which is two months. So you're looking at a two-month ritual or a two-month template. So let's say you want to learn grammar, okay? And medieval monks can be interested in learning Latin grammar because Latin was the, the, the predominant language at the time. And so in the you have the first month and the second month. And in both months, you have certain prayers which you have to pray on certain days. Some prayer, so the times are divided up into ordinary days and auspicious days. Auspicious days are based off of the certain lunations or the days of the moon. Okay. So, like you're going to start on a new moon and you have a, a separate grouping. You have general prayers and you have special prayers. The general prayers are those prayers that are meant to help enhance your mental faculties and your spiritual faculties to communicate with the angel. The special prayers are those specific prayers designed to help you learn the particular field of interest. So you would have three prayers for this, the study of grammar, okay? So in addition to these prayers, fasting and attaining the dream vision of the angel who's going to tutor you, you are going to be interested in, let's see, Oh, well, the inspection of the figures, right? These these notary art figures. And so you have three figures for grammar. And so you would pray, you would study your textbooks, and then you would do the inspection of the prayer of the figures, inspection of the figures. So you're doing that art of memory technique as you consult the textbook and inspecting the figures. And of course, the, the memory technique requires you to do it re repetitively. So the 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 Argentoria instructs you to say, okay, we'll inspect the first prayer, the first figure 12 times, you know, and then you do it 24 times and so on. And so you really train your mind to remember that information on grammar. So that's two months. And then you would take that same template to learn your logic in two months and so on. So that's version A. I think I'll stop there in case you want to comment on any of that no no the only thing that i'm curious about is i'm trying to visualize what this would have looked like i mean okay so first of all when people are primarily doing this ritual what century are we talking about if you're looking at the version a mm -hmm. it's 13th century okay so version b came along in the 14th and 15th centuries got it so in the third for version a if I was doing this ritual, I mean, like, what did what did life look like for a university student? And, and maybe in what country would they have been doing this? I mean, are we talking about people getting like a religious monk-like education or help me, help me visualize yeah. what this would be like? Sure. Well, there was the, the church was 
overseeing the education system at the time. So you had young men or young boys who would study in a cathedral setting or church setting. And you also had the rise of the university. So the Ars Notoria, as it exists today, had appeared in the 13th century of Northern Italy, probably circulated at the University of Bologna, which is the oldest university founded in Europe in 1088. So you have those two settings, and you're also looking at your target audience of young men, and usually it was elite men because they were the ones who got an education, whereas the the common serf did not. The serf was often doing what they called the mechanical arts or the practical arts, you know, such as tailoring, you know, you know, shoe repair, you know, farming, et cetera, et cetera. So the so the Ars Natura was primarily interested in the liberal arts, which was for the elite or the upper class. So what age somebody was studying this? Like, are we talking about like 18, 19 or, or younger? Uh, could be younger. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in, in, a, in a church-like setting? I'm, I'm a little unclear about how the university system differs from the church system at this time period. Sure. So at the university, you would go into the lecture hall and perhaps listen to your professor read out of a book or he may lecture. You might be able to have some scraps of paper to jot down notes, but a lot of times you had to memorize the material or you had to borrow a book that he was reading from. Hmm. And, you know, there's a sense that there weren't very many copies for it to, to go around for everyone. And so that's why the importance of memory is so important. Whereas in the, the the cathedral or church setting, you probably had a a priest or a monk that was instructing a, a group of boys, and I mean, you know, it'd be similar. You know, the, the the priest is still instructing the boys, but as far as the Argentoria is interested in, if you're looking at an, a, a setting aside from like doing this in your own home. Excuse me, let me say, and then version B, it does actually give us some details on on this visualization that you're you're asking for, is it, because it will say, and the there's it takes four months in version B. And the fourth month, that's when you do the inspection of the figures. and you're doing a lot of the heavy prayers and rituals. Everything's kind of coming to a a climax in the in the ritual in the fourth month. And at that time, it says that you can bring in your master who would instruct you in the notary art. He will help you to pronounce the prayers. And you are to seclude yourself from the rest of society. So if someone was to come at your door, you might have an associate or assistant that would actually answer the door for you. So you would be left undisturbed. And your associate is not to disturb you when you're doing your prayers or to see do the inspection of the figures and the your associate would bring you the you know your bread and water but they would not enter not enter the room so only the master could help you do the pronunciation of some of these strange strangely formulated prayers because for anyone who sees the ars notoria you see some of these words or these prayers are very strange to our eyes and it looks like gibberish but the Ars Notoria claims that these are prayers that include the names of certain angels and that all that was derived from King Solomon, according to the story. So I have a broader question then, which is, you know, and assume I know nothing. What is the Solomonic tradition? I mean, what is it really? Because not at the surface level, but at the deep level, where did it actually start other than where people claim what was its impact on society and what was it really? What was this legend of King Solomon? I know that this, you know, has become very, very popular going back to the Solomonic texts. So what's the, what's going on there? Yeah. Well, uh, when people say Solomonic tradition or the Solomonic magical tradition, I'm really thinking about the personality of King Solomon. You know, we've, there's this, 
this over this centuries, there's this development of this King Solomon as a magician or King Solomon as a hermetic sage who is very wise. And all that really stems from, right, the biblical account that King Solomon, and this ties in with the Ars Notoria, that King Solomon had gone up to the mountain and he made sacrifices to God. And that night, Solomon had a dream and God came to, to him in a vision and said, what would you ask of me? And King Solomon asked for wisdom and God granted it to King Solomon. And so that is the, the, the biblical narrative that King Solomon became wise. And so the magical tradition built upon that. And we see that in the Greek magical papyri. We see it in the Testament of Solomon. And then we see it in a very, various other medieval and Renaissance magical writings like the Key of Solomon and the like, Megaton and so forth. So all these works are different and none of them were written by the same person, right? And that one person wrote all these things because they crossed so many centuries. So you, we've kind of, it's this development of this personality and not all the magical techniques are the same across all these texts. So you're really just looking at a name associated with these magical texts. And a lot of times that was because the, the true author of these works was, was wanting to be anonymous wanting to provide credibility authority to what he is saying. And so they assigned it to King Solomon. Interesting. Uh, was there any type of class distinction to the people that were reading these? Like who, well, first of all, who was the, uh, you've, you've touched upon this a little bit already, but who was the audience in general for these, these grimoires? And was it a certain class of society? Oh, um, well, what I have studied on my own is a lot of times these words, these grimoires were studied by lawyers and doctors. So you're probably looking at a highly educated upper class uh, segment of society. Okay. That's, that's quite interesting. And, you know, I know from Stephen Skinner's work that just on Anokian, he talks about Dr. Rudd and this kind of aristocratic tradition of angel magic that that carried on those texts from past D's time, but it was always very wealthy people who were kind of reclusive aristocrats. So that's quite interesting. And is that that's something that you put in contrast to, for instance, the folk magic of the time? Because you read Agrippa and Agrippa like has all this folk magic. But the question is, you know, is this something that was actually being practiced widely? And was there a class distinction to that also? Like, uh, were, were there different, basically what I'm asking is, were there different types of, of magic for different types of people at this time? Oh, oh, well, certainly. Yeah, there's certainly a folk charms and so forth practiced in the medieval period. But that, that is generally not found here in the Ars Notoria. So why would it have been lawyers and doctors studying this? Oh, well, I was, I was speaking about the, the grimoires generally oh, for okay. the upper class. Okay. So I mean, we're, you know, now we were thinking like 15th century Renaissance period. That's, that's what we know. I mean, talking about the key of Solomon and so forth. But the Ars Notoria, like I said, is probably aimed young boys or men who were interested in learning to enhance their cognitive ability and their knowledge. Very really. interesting. So young, uh, young men were aspirational even then. That's great. What was I going to ask you? I'm just blanked. See, I need Ars Notoria. Suddenly I've, I've, my memory is blanking in a conversation about a memory uh, Im Im improvement. Well, I can talk to you about the, the version B. Yes, uh, yes, please cool. do. So oh, now I know. I, I remember what I was going to ask you, but I'll, 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 oh. okay. Don't, don't lose version B. What I was going to ask you is I've always wondered how much of the grimoire tradition, particularly the early grimoire tradition is, let me say inspired or even kind of ripped off in a non-understanding way from, you know, the Kabbalah being brought into Europe by a Sephardic 
Judaism during that time, like the Lurianic Kabbalah, everything that was happening in 12th century Spain. Because you read a lot right. of these things, like for instance, the Kia Solomon, and there's all these badly translated Hebrew words and, and people have tried to write Hebrew and it's not, you know, they haven't even got the letters correct. And, you know, it's almost like, it's almost like a parody of Jewish writing with this like implicit assumption of like, oh, like there's something evil and supernatural here, which, you know, obviously there's political dimensions to that. But that's something I'm curious, I've wondered about. I don't know if that's something you've touched on at all in your studies, like where that kind of cultural, where the Grimoire tradition related to Jews coming into, into Europe. Oh, well, that is an interesting thought. What I can say is that I, I did find a Hebrew version, or I should say another scholar had found it, and I now presented it here in the book. There's a Hebrew version of the, the notary art. It's incomplete, and perhaps, you know, there's a, one could interpret it as maybe there was an original Hebrew uh, Ars Notoria, and then a Latin followed, but the, still more studies need to be done. But I had a good rabbi help translate part of that material for me, and I presented it here in the book. I believe it was from the... 14th century in France by a, a Jew had written it. I believe there's 14 prayers in it, which seem, most of them seem to correlate with the general prayers, those ones for enhancing your, your mental faculties. But as far, as far as the Kabbalah part uh, that you're talking about, the notary art seems to, to my mind to be related to Notary Khan, which is a Jewish exegetical method of interpretation of scripture. Hmm. And so the Notary Khan or that particular esoteric interpretation was presumably done by King Solomon himself. And that's how these prayers seem to have these strange, these strangely formulated prayers that appear to be gibberish to us. That it's actually the work of the Notricon interpretation, where a single word is expanded upon to a sentence, or vice versa, an entire sentence is then compressed into a single word. And so that gets into the what I would say the, the mythology or the the mythical origin story of the notary art, in which King Solomon had received the notary art from the angel Pamphilus and a dream and was instructed to write down these particular prayers that would help gain the knowledge that he sought. And so you have these supposedly at least three Hebrew books that were given to King Solomon. And then he then took the best of them in a in his own writing called the the Book of Flowers of Heavenly Teaching, which is to be, not to be confused with the French Benedictine monk John Moriori's book of the same title. But in King Solomon's compilation, that was then passed on to Apollonius of Tyana, who is a, a Greek philosopher in the first century. And he was the one who then translated that into English and, de and helped decode some of these strange prayers and and they were then printed presented to us in latin with a very strong christian tone wait you, you um, said apollonius of tyana in the first century translated it into english no 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 apollonius translated I, oh. king solomon's book uh, the book of flower book of heavenly teaching I, I, yeah into i thought latin. I, I was confused I, okay all right okay go ahead i'm sorry yeah 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 so from so King Solomon's book, which was a interweaving of Hebrew, Greek, and Chaldean languages, that was translated and decoded by Apollonius of Tyana into Latin. Okay, and then from the Latin, then I did the the trans translation work into English. Oh, I, I see. Okay, all right, all right. Okay, I miss her. I got the sequence mixed up in my head. Okay, great. So do we have any historical information on who King Solomon actually was, or even if he existed at all? 
That is a good question, and I'll leave that to the biblical scholars. Right, so we don't know. And who was uh, Apollonius? Of oh, sorry, go ahead. But oh, Apollonius. Uh, yeah, who was, was Apollonius a, of Tyana, and why is he important to the the Western esoteric tradition? Yeah, he was a first century Greek philosopher, a new Pythagorean, favoring the Greek thinker of Pythagoras, and he's important for the Ars Notoria because, and this is where I think. We're looking at the his was called the book of golden book of golden flowers, and the golden flowers is a, a selection of extracts from King Solomon's book. Okay, and that book is incomplete, and then it was then added to by supplement with some other Christian writings, and so the golden flowers was probably of a Greek and Byzantine origin. And those writings were passed to the Latin West by the Arabs, because the Arabs were interested in translating Greek works, mathematics and philosophy and so forth. And they're also interested in astrology. And there are a number of treatises related to a number of treatises related to astrology and Apollonius. And so that's where the esoteric and hermetic tradition intersects. So so I have a potentially politically sensitive question I'm just listening to you, which is we hear a lot about the Middle East and the Arabic world, the Islamic world being the source for alchemy and mathematics and things like that. But is it possible that that knowledge was actually them drawing from prior Greek knowledge that they had access to. Uh, I'm sorry, could you word that again? So just kind of extrapolating from what you're saying, we're often told that the Arabic world was the source of, for instance, alchemy and mathematics, certain types of mathematics, and brought a bunch of knowledge, advanced knowledge into Europe in the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages, and in a sense was the only bastion of, of knowledge perhaps in, in the Dark Ages, uh, some people have argued. But is it possible that those were not original advances in the, in the Arab world, that those were prior, that was prior information from Greece that they had access to? Right. Yeah, some of it was. And okay. so the, the Arabs were, they're translating Aristotle and Plato, and they were like, oh, this is really interesting. What, you know, scientific discoveries can we make on our own based off all these Greek writings that we've translated? And that's what they did. And that was okay. considered the, the golden age, the Islamic world. So looking at. Okay. So that, that, that is really interesting because then basically what I could riff off of from that then is, can we make the argument that the golden age of is both the golden age of Islam that you're talking about of yeah. Islamic knowledge and the Renaissance were both prompted by suddenly having access to texts from ancient, from ancient Greece and Rome, from the classical world. So neither one of those was like an advance in knowledge. It was people just discovering earlier text. Yeah, yeah. It's a okay. re rediscovery. Uh, that, that I, I feel part, like that, were... that bit, that little distinction right there, I've, that's kind of like, an, like that, that's kind of a big deal. I mean, it's similar to asking who started the crew was it, you know, did who started the crusades basically like who, who shot first. It's a little bit like that question, uh -huh. but yeah. Okay. So that's super interesting. Sorry. So sorry to tangent, but go ahead. Oh no, no, that that's, that's very important because, you know, in the 12th century we have, they, they call it the rediscovery of Aristotle, you know, because the Arabs were bringing translations to the Latin West. And we see that influence here in the Ars Notoria because if you look at some of the the, the text, it, it references Aristotle's works directly. So that is definitely of interest here in the 12th and 13th centuries at the advent of the Ars Notoria. Could, could an argument, like a through line, is it as simplistic as, and I don't think it is, I'm curious what your thoughts are, but is it as simplistic as okay, well, Greece and Rome fell, there were the Dark Ages, finally, the whatever, whatever remaining information there was, was rediscovered. And then suddenly, 
everyone got smart again. We invented science and everything was great from then on. So it was basically all we needed to do was pick up the text from back then. Like, well, like, like walk me through that. I mean, <laughs> like, like where, 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 I mean, there's a lot of questions that that provokes. It's like, what, what was so special about the material from the ancient world? Did, did our culture fully absorb it or did we just move on to a new paradigm? How did that relate to the birth of science? I mean, these are big questions. These are very big questions. And I, I don't think there's a simple answer to that. I think we're kind of, you know, just making broad sweeping strokes here. And that's, that's yeah, really I, getting... Basically, I'm making... Basically, what I'm saying is this is this is as broad of a stroke as I can make right now because I can't do any more detailed. Please do the detailed version of that. That's actually accurate, if you can. <laughs> I feel like you're asking me to, to summarize centuries of scientific discovery. I don't think I... <laughs> Let me break that down. Let me, let me ask bit by bit. Okay, so, so what, let me ask this. What was it that was so important and special about the material that we rediscovered from ancient Greece and Rome, which, you know, like the, the, the you know, was that just Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and not in that order? But what, what, what was it that was so important about that material that it apparently hauled two cultures out of an age of ignorance? Well, they called Aristotle the philosopher. They didn't just call him Aristotle. He was the philosopher. And so he brought us, you know, knowledge of science and philosophy and logic. And I can say, coming back to the Ars Notoria, logic was present. Aristotle logic was present in the Ars Notoria. We also see a little bit of Boethius, who was another philosopher who did a lot of Greek to Latin translation works for us. And his books became the, the school textbooks used by the students. So they said, oh, uh, did you read your Bo Boethius last night? I forgot. I'm going to fail this quiz, you know, whatever. So Boethius's texts are, are central to the study of the Ars Notoria. And the medieval period. Okay, so I'm not sure that quite answered my question about what is what is it that is so great about Aristotle? Like I know you said that he's the philosopher's philosopher. Okay, I'm not arguing there. But what is it about that material that was somehow able to end the Dark Ages in two different cultures? What is so great? Like you know, what is it like make a third eye grow in the middle of your head or give you superpowers just to read it? Or is like the deductive logic and all of that so powerful that it was actually able to prompt, you know, civilizational reform centuries, if not millennia after the fact? Well, it would be, I mean, Aristotle is famous for his deductive logic. Yeah, his, his syllogisms, his ways to reason things out. You know, people still talk about Aristotle today in philosophy classes. It was a way of thinking about the world, and they applied it to just about every aspect of their of their lives in, in terms of reasoning through problems and, and so forth. You know, it, I, <laughs> I, I don't know what more, oh. to, more to say. I'm, so I'm thinking like, could it maybe, could this be said more technically as, from this material, people basically got better algorithms for decision making and under, you know, verifying truth claims. Basically, what you're kind of suggesting there is it's mental technology, like it's a checklist that somebody runs through in their head or a process, a methodology that somebody follows, which, you know, is, is algorithm could perhaps be expressed algorithmically. Um, okay, I lost you. <laughs> okay. we're, 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 I feel like we're we're deviating away from the Ars Notori and we're talking about well, Aristotelian philosophy well, and how we, that's we, important. We're, we're talking about a broader a broader thing here, which is mental processes and mental exercises, which can improve people's cognition and thereby, perhaps on a broader scale, improve societies. In the case of sure. getting of, of Arist uh, Aristotelian logic. So this, this suggests to me, and, and don't worry, this is a sales pitch for your book. It suggests to me that, you know, if, if we're entering a new dark age, as we very much seem to be, that the key to ending the prior dark age 
and we have data from two civilizations of what you're saying about about the Arab world is correct. We have data from two civilizations that it was Aristotelian logic that dragged people out of the Dark Age. So this this suggests to me that people really ought to go back and study Aristotle or things like the Ars Notoria that are just simply layering better mental processes than perhaps they're just knee-jerk reactions to social media stimulus. Oh. Um, well, as, you know, as interesting as Aristotle is, I, you know, I think you're, you're looking at, you know, maybe Aristotle will help us come out of our present dark, darkening well, age. Preve- prevent us from going into one since apparently um, people need rational thinking. I don't think that's thinking. going to be, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to be true because a lot of 20th century philosophers have basically deconstructed and, and re- refuted Aristotelian logic. And in fact, that goes back to uh, the 17th century scientific revolution, where we went from Aristotelian worldview to a mechanicalistic Newtonian worldview. And that's, like I said, other uh, philosophers in the 20th century have provided new ways of, of logic and provided that us new ways of thinking about doing logic and philosophy. So in a way, Aristotle has become outdated, but yet he's still relevant because he's very much the bedrock of Western philosophy. Interesting. So if somebody wants to practice a magical ritual to improve their memory, or if somebody wants to do the Ars Notoria, what are the requirements for them to do it? Yeah, so that would be preferably having a, a quiet place to do the prayers. To do the fasting, you need the figures themselves. In the version B, our centuria, you need a hot tea made from saffron and rose water. But essentially, that's it. You know, it's it's very simple practice, and I think that makes it more appealing to anyone who wants to try to practice it today because. It's a better alternative to the other grimoires, which require you to have, you know, swords and knives and a circle and all these, all this ritual implements to create and, and do, which is very time consuming unto itself. The Arsentoria, it's kind of like pick it up and go, really. And I think doing a modern reconstruction of the ritual is probably going to be more closer to the way it was done in medieval times versus a modern reconstruction of other grimoires. So I'm looking up saffron right now and lo and behold, it is a nootropic. I'm just seeing off uh, somebody's blog as a nootropic saffron may be used for depression, PMS symptoms, postpartum depression, memory, appetite suppression, and preventing neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. Right. There you go. That's interesting. So they were already aware that saffron was available to boost your your memory and your mood. Well, saffron was like crazy expensive back then too, wasn't it? Like ridiculously expensive. Yeah. So Because the way you harvest it from the flower uh, is very laborious. And so so it was very expensive. So that would suggest that only extremely wealthy people would have had access to the ability to do the ritual? Well... Again, you know, you're looking at elite young men who would have been practicing this. So they probably would have had the, the financial resources to acquire the saffron. And both saffron and rose was of Persian origin, which again, to me, suggests that you're looking at a originally Byzantine and Greek origin to the Arctoria. Yeah, that makes sense. And then that was then imported into Northern Italy. That but, definitely makes uh, sense. again, that's just hypothesis, and that I don't have, I don't have hard, concrete proof of that. But there's a lot of indicators that suggest that it certainly makes sense. I looked up rose water also, and it says it's believed to have antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antibacterial properties, and it's thought to help improve digestion, reduce stress, and improve skin health. So, and it can be used as a natural remedy for headaches, anxiety, and depression. So that's quite interesting that both of those are actually psychoactive. Right. All right. Well, super interesting. 
I think that probably brings us to the end of the interview. But tell us about tell us about where people can find out more about you and get the book. Yeah, uh, you can look me up at MatthiasCastle.com. I also have a blog that includes various writings on the Ars Notoria that supplements the book. And the book itself can be found wherever books are sold. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. And it really is a beautiful book. Congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. All right. Take care. Ooh. Claudine Gay. Claudine Context Gay. Say the word context the same because of you, smartass. You smarty pants fuck. Bye-bye. Biggity. Bye-bye. Claudine Gay. You're done. You're done. Sally Cornbluff of MIT, you're up next, you fuck you. We ain't forget about you. You're an embarrassment to Goodwill Hunting and Matt Damon. Claudine Gay, congratulations on being the shortest tenured president in Harvard history. And that ain't taken out of context. Bye. But what the fuck do you do after a downfall like that? A fall from fucking grace like that. And speaking of done... Three of Hamas's top shitbag terrorists have been eliminated, killed in Beirut. And now we're coming for you, Sinwar. You're hiding. You're hiding. You still can't take a shit. You're hiding. You self-loathing, miserable motherfucker. What a day. What a day. And what a way to start off 2024. We like what we're seeing. I want some more. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class. And until next time, hang in there.